0: Section 9 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 15 The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 9 The Training of Kitchener's Mob, 1914, by James Norman Hall. Kitchener's Mob. They were called in the early days of August 1914, when London hoardings were clamorous with the first calls for volunteers. The seasoned regulars of the first British expeditionary force said it patronizingly, the great British public hopefully, the world at large doubtfully. Kitchener's Mob, when there were but a scant sixty thousand under arms with millions yet to come. Kitchener's mob, it remains today, fighting in hundreds of thousands in France, Belgium, Africa, the Balkans, and who, tomorrow, when the war is ended, will come marching home again. Old campaigners, war-worn remnants of once mighty armies? Kitchener's mob. It is not a pleasing name for the greatest volunteer army in the history of the world, for more than three millions of toughened, disciplined fighting men united under one flag, all parts of one magnificent military organization and yet Kitchener's own Tommies are responsible for it. The rank and file with their inherent love of ridicule, even at their own expense, and their intense dislike of swank, they fasten the name upon themselves lest the world at large should think they regarded themselves too highly there it hangs there it will hang for all time it was on the eighteenth of august nineteen fourteen that the mob spirit gained its mastery over me after three weeks solitary tramping in the mountains of north wales i walked suddenly into news of the great war and went at once to london with a longing for home which seemed strong enough to carry me through the week of idleness until my boat should sail for america but in a spirit of adventure i suppose i tempted myself with the possibility of assuming the increasingly popular alias atkins on two successive mornings i joined the long line of prospective recruits before the offices at great scotland yard withdrawing each time After moving a convenient distance toward the desk of the recruiting sergeant, disregarding the proven fatality of third times, I joined in on another morning, dangerously near to the head of the procession. I was frank with the recruiting officers. I admitted, rather boasted, of my American citizenship, but expressed my entire willingness to serve in the British Army in case this should not expatriate me. I had, in fact, Delayed, hoping that an American legion would be formed in London as had been done in Paris. The announcement was received with some surprise, during which there was much vigorous shaking of heads. Three years or the duration of the war were the terms of the enlistment contract. I had visions of bloody engagements, of feverish nights in hospital, of endless years in a home for disabled soldiers the conference was over and the recruiting officer returned to his desk smiling broadly we'll take you my lad if you want to join you'll just say you are an englishman won't you as a matter of formality the remainder of the week i spent mingling with the crowds of enlisted men at the horse guards parade watching the bulletin boards for the appearance of my name which would mean that i was to report at the regimental depot at Hounslow, my first impression of the men with whom i was to live for three years or the duration of the war was anything but favourable the newspapers had been asserting that the new army was being recruited from the flower of england's young manhood the throng at the horse guards parade resembled an army of the unemployed and i thought it likely that most of them were misfits out of works, the kind of men who join the army because they can do nothing else. There were, in fact, a good many of these. I soon learned, however, that the general out at elbows appearance was due to another cause. A mob is genuinely descriptive of the array of would be soldiers which crowded the parade ground at Hounslow Barracks during the memorable last week in August we herded together like so many sheep we had lost our individuality and it was to be months before we regained it in a new aspect a collective individuality of which we became increasingly proud we squeak squawked across the barrack square in boots which felt large enough for an entire family of feet our khaki service dress uniforms were strange and uncomfortable Our hands hung limply along the seams of our pocketless trousers. We had come to Hounslow, believing that, within a few weeks' time, we should be fighting in France, side by side, with the men of the first British expeditionary force. Lord Kitchener had said that six months of training at the least was essential. This statement was regarded as intentionally misleading. Lord Kitchener was too shrewd a soldier to announce his plans. But England needed men badly, immediately. After a week of training, we should be proficient in the use of our rifles. In addition to this, all that was needed was the ability to form fours and march in column of route to the station where we would entrain for Folkestone or Southampton and France. As soon as the battalion was up to strength, we were given a day of preliminary drill before proceeding to our future training area in essex it was a disillusioning experience equally disappointing was the undignified display of our little skill at charing cross station where we performed before a large and amused london audience for my own part i could scarcely wait until we were safely hidden within the train although mine was a london regiment we had men in the ranks from all parts of the united kingdom there were north countrymen a few welsh scotch and irish men from the midlands and from the south of england but for the most part we were cockneys born within the sound of bow bells being an american it was very hard at first to understand the class distinctions of british army life and having understood them it was more difficult yet to endure them i learned that a ranker or private soldier is a socially inferior being from the officer's point of view the officer class and the ranker class are east and west and never the twain shall meet except in their respective places on the parade ground this does not hold good to the same extent upon active service hardships and dangers shared in common tend to break down artificial barriers but even then although there was good-will and friendliness between officers and men i saw nothing of genuine comradeship this seemed to me a great pity it was a loss for the officers fully as much as for the men we declined to accept the responsibility for the seeming slowness of our progress we threw upon the war office which had not equipped us in a manner befitting our station in life although we were recruited immediately after the outbreak of war less than half of our number had been provided with uniforms our arms and equipment were of an equally nondescript character we might easily have been mistaken for a mob of vagrants which had pillaged a seventeenth-century arsenal our housing accommodations throughout the autumn and winter of 1914-1915, when England was in such urgent need of shelter for her rapidly increasing armies, were also of the makeshift order. We slept in leaky tents or in hastily constructed wooden shelters, many of which were afterward condemned by the medical inspectors. St. Martin's Plain, Shorncliffe, was an ideal camping site for pleasant summer weather. But when the autumnal rains set in, the green pasture land became a quagmire. Mud was the great reality of our lives, the malignant deity which we fell down in and propitiated with profane rites. It was a thin, watery mud or a thick, viscous mud, as the steady downpour increased or diminished. Late in November we were moved to a city of wooden huts at Sandling Junction. To make room for newly recruited units, the dwellings were but half finished. the drains were open ditches, and the rains descended, and the floods came as usual. We lived an amphibious and wretched existence until January when, to our great joy, we were transferred to billets in the metropole, one of Folkestone's most fashionable hotels. Meanwhile, our rigorous training continued from week to week in. All weathers, even the most inclement. Reveille sounded at daybreak. For an hour before breakfast, we did Swedish drill. Two hours daily were given to musketry practice. After musketry practice, the remainder of the day was given to an extended order, company, and battalion drill. Twice weekly, we route marched from ten to fifteen miles, and at night, after the parades of the day were finished, boxing and wrestling contests arranged and encouraged by the officers kept the red blood pounding through our bodies until lights out sounded at nine o'clock plenty of hard work in the open air brought great and welcome changes the men talked of their food anticipated it with a zest which came from realizing for the first time the joy of being genuinely hungry they watched their muscles harden with a satisfaction known to every normal man when he is becoming physically efficient food exercise and rest taken in wholesome quantities and at regular intervals were having the usual excellent results for my own part i never before had been in such splendid health i wished that it might at all times be possible for democracies to exercise a beneficent paternalism over the lives of their citizenry at least in matters of health it seems a great pity that the principle of personal freedom should be responsible for so many ill shaped and ill sorted physical incompetence. My fellow Tommies were living, really living for the first time. They had never before known what it means to be radiantly buoyantly healthy. There were as well more profound and subtle changes in thoughts and habits. The restraints of discipline and the very exacting character of military life and training gave them self control, mental alertness. At the beginning, they were individuals, no more cohesive than so many grains of wet sand. After nine months of training, they acted as a unit, obeying orders with the instinctive promptness of action, which is so essential on the field of battle when men think scarcely at all. End of section nine.